Alright, we continue our whirlwind tour of the Bible. And we've got, we're doing Mark part 2, and that's all the parts there are for Mark. <laughs> Last week we did the first eight chapters, and so we're just finishing up um, this section called Jesus Withdrawals from Galilee. That's just a little last little bit and then his final ministry in Galilee and then he'll go into Judea Perea and the passion of Jesus what what do we mean when we say passion that's an unusual use of the word but what does that mean suffering suffering that's right and then finally his resurrection so we'll, we're doing all that this morning of course we did Matthew before this and and if you recall, the outline for Matthew looks a whole lot like this outline. They're very, very similar books. Mark being a lot shorter. Um, but I wondered if you've had a chance to think about this. How does, how does the book of Mark differ from Matthew? What do you notice as you read it that, that you find different? Matthew? He loves to use the word immediately. Yeah, that's a very popular book with him. Um, Mark really is a a book about action. Um, He he has much less of what Jesus says, although he still has plenty, of course, but much less of what what Jesus says and much more about, about what Jesus does. If you look back in Matthew, for example, when, when he does parables, he does far more parables in Matthew than he does um, in Mark. Uh, Mark. Mark is into uh, the miracles that he does. Um, so, yeah, the word immediately, that you, you see that just all over the place. It just any, You can turn to any chapter and just, you're just going to find immediately. Um, and it's not even just Jesus doing immediately. It's other, others. We'll see one in chapter 9 where the other people are doing immediately. Uh, another word that I, that I find quite a lot in the book of Mark is amazed. Um, the people are just all the time amazed at Jesus. Um, and I think that's one of Mark's emphasis to try to show that um, Jesus in His actions and in, in, in who He was, how He behaved, just amazed people. <laughs> Now Matthew mentions amazement some too. I mean, it's not like I don't. I, Matthew has some immediately, I'm sure, and some amazed. But it's there's a different emphasis. Who was Matthew writing for? What was his audience? The Jews. The Jews, yeah. And, and because of that, what was his emphasis about Jesus? Messiah. Messiah. I'm looking for something more. Yeah. King of the Jews, yes. Yeah, you're looking for, for Jesus as the King of the Jews. Um, and as a result, Matthew quotes the Old Testament many more times than Mark does. Uh, I mean, Mark has a few, but, but Matthew just all the time. You know, this fulfills the Old Testament, is what he would say. And you know, this, this fulfills this passage or that passage. Um, anyone have an idea who Mark was writing for? Matthew? People with ADD. <laughs> he, he, his, his, the attention deficit disorder. 
group, huh? Yeah, definitely the Gentiles. He he translate every so often he'll throw in a phrase uh, that in Jesus' words, which was of course Aramaic, and he'll translate it into Greek. So obviously he's not writing for for Aramaic speaking people. Um, most people believe he was writing for the Romans. Um, I, I can't put my finger on it, but but there apparently there's one place where they where the ISBE says he translates something into Latin for people, uh, which would again just be for targeting the Romans. But more, but we have more evidence than that. The early writers, um, this is you know from the second century on, the early writers that tell about this tell us that the book was written by Mark uh, for the Romans. Um, it's it's not clear whether. Mark was actually in Rome when he wrote it. Um, what, what the early writers say is that Mark was quite close to Peter and that, that Peter in his sermons would tell stories about Jesus and that Mark was the one that then took those stories and wrote them down um, in, into, the, into the book we have called Mark. Um, <clears throat> And if he was writing for the Romans, you can see why he would do the emphasis he did because Romans were big on doing. I mean, Romans were not famous for their philosophy, for their thinking, for their debate, and they weren't famous for that at all. They were doers. Um, the Romans were the ones who were build the, building the roads, um, who were going around conquering everybody. You know, the, the Greeks liked to sit around and think, but the Romans did, they didn't do that. <laughs> um, one one writer I read suggested that Matthew and Mark are are kind of two halves of the book of Isaiah. And and you remember when we did the book of Isaiah, it was very clearly in two halves. The first half presents the coming Messiah as the king, as the conqueror. The second half presents him as well, as something very different. What is that? Yeah, Brent. The servant of the Lord, yes. He's the servant of the Lord who finally ends up giving Himself for the sins of, of, of us. And so, Matthew's presenting the fulfillment of the Son of David as the King. And Mark presents Jesus as a fulfillment of the perfect servant of God. Now, God created us to be His servants. We all have failed, and Jesus is the one who has has truly lived it and has set the pattern for how we ought to live. Um, so, it, one of the things I tried to do in this morning's lesson was pay careful attention to some details that Mark had in his stories that Matthew didn't have. And, and if I can remember as we go through, because I didn't write them down very well, but if I can remember as I go through, I'll try to point out some of these. Just little things that Mark has. He, he, even though Mark is much briefer, um, that he, in, in several of the stories, he's, he gives more. I mean, the stories themselves are longer, even though the book as a whole is shorter. And he makes the book shorter by chopping out all the parables, I think, mostly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right, so we'll, we'll go into chapter 9 then. Um, and we've got the transfiguration here. Um, 
I, I didn't find much different from what we had in Matthew for that. Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and He was transfigured before them. And um, But then on the way down, in verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And this is interesting here in verse 10. They seized upon that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Jesus has been telling them this for, for some time here and He's going to keep telling it, it to them. They can't figure it out. Why can't they figure this out? Exactly. Yeah. Their view of Him as the Son of David, as the earthly king... Death is not part of this is part not part of this picture at all. Now, when they got back down from the mountain, both Matthew and Mark, and I'm pretty sure Luke as well, uh, tell the same story when they get back down. They're up on the mountain, they come back down, you could say they're down in the valley, spiritually as well as <laughs> as well as physically. Um, and they, they they all tell this same story, but Mark gives us additional details that we just didn't get in. in in uh, Matthew. First of all, we find a setting in verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large, large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Matthew doesn't mention a thing about that. Scribes arguing with them. What, what was the attitude the scribes typically had toward Jesus and his disciples? Yeah, they didn't like him at all. I mean, they. they, they um, the scribes had the same attitude as the Pharisees, and oftentimes the scribes were Pharisees. And Jesus didn't. Jesus wasn't paying any attention to their traditions, and their job was to teach traditions. At least that's what they thought their job was. So, yeah, this is this is an embarrassing situation here. The scribes, who are always trying to get some, you know, dig up some kind of dirt on Jesus, they're right there when what's happened to the disciples. That failed to exercise it. Yeah, they failed to cast out a demon. Jesus had given the power to cast out demons. They've been doing this. Here they fail. What an embarrassing time to have the scribes on the scene. But that's exactly what's going on here. So then in verse 15, immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. There's that word amazed again. <clears throat> um, so Jesus has to discuss this with them and he finds out that you know, they tried to cast the demon out and they couldn't. And so in verse 19, and Matthew has the same thing. He says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And you remember in, in Matthew, afterwards when they asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast him out? He said, because of your unbelief. And, the, and so that's kind of what he's saying here. How, you know, unbelieving generation, what? You know, this is, it's just a pain. It's very painful to him. So then we have a lot more going on. The exchange between the Father and Jesus is much more fleshed out in Mark. Jesus in verse 21 asks him, what? How long has he been in this state? Yeah, how long? And the answer? From childhood. From childhood, yeah. Which, when you think about it, that's, that's a pretty sad story there. Pretty, pretty sad. 
And it tells them in verse 22 all the things he's been doing. And, and I mean, this poor family just must be very distraught. Just... And so finally, he says at the end, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now that's the kind of statement you, you would make if you, if, if you suffer from an illness for many, many years and you go to a doctor, you know, the doctor checks you out and, and you'll say, well, you know, if, if you can do anything, I, you know, please help me. But Jesus picks up on that, if, the if thing. <laughs> and so in verse 23, He says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> and you know that, again, that's not a Matthew. That's one of the most helpful verses for us today. I mean... How many of us can say we don't need help with our unbelief? <laughs> so, he believed, but he helped him with his unbelief. And so, Jesus did. He gave him the, all the help he needed by casting out the demon. And so then, the disciples came and asked, why could we not drive it out? Same question they asked in Matthew, but Jesus gives a different answer. Now, it's not that Mark and Matthew are contradicting. They're each just quoting a different piece of the whole story. And in in Mark, he says to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Matthew says, because of your unbelief. You put them together and you realize we need prayer to overcome our unbelief. Alright, in the next section, he again predicts his, his death and his resurrection. Um, then in verse 33 we've got this interesting question they were he, what's he asking them when they get in the house <coughs> Helen yeah hey what were, you, what were you guys talking about on the way <laughs> what did they say nothing <laughs> oops <laughs> they have been discussing which one was the greatest <laughs> no doubt a discussion they were all very interested in, probably a rather heated discussion. <clears throat> Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Just a very, very different attitude than what the world has about what it is to be great. And if the disciples had trouble with it, we will too. It's a danger for all of us. And just in case we wondered, we find an illustration in the next verse. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Isn't that the most common of attitudes? You're not in our group, so you know you can't you can't do it. Jesus said, "Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us." Now, we've always heard it the other way around, haven't we? Haven't we? He was not for us; is against us, which that's in the Bible too. <laughs> <laughs> Both statements are true. Um, so it goes on about um, 
whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. And, and it all comes back, and I think Mark is doing this on purpose, it all comes back to this problem about our attitude about greatness. Um, John would not have felt that way about this guy casting out demons uh, in the name of Jesus if he had not been one of the ones participating in the, in the argument about who's the greatest. It's, they simply do not have God's view of things. And the same issue comes up with the humblest of tasks. Whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink. Well, when you're thinking in terms of greatness, that person is way down there with dirt. I mean, he is, that is just nothing. Jesus says, that person is great. <laughs> it's a very different view. And people that think they're great walk on other people. I mean, how do you get to the top of one of these big multinational corporations? By stepping on the heads of the people below you. That's how you get to the top. You step on people. That's the way the world works. How do you get the top to the top in politics? Same way. How do you get the top in Jesus' kingdom? By giving cups of cold water. <laughs> and by not stepping on people. And he talks about stepping on people in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, what would it be better for him? Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, drown the sea with a heavy millstone around his neck. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so Jesus is turning everything upside down here. <clears throat> but it's going to take these guys a long time to get it. And it uh, takes us a long time too. It's a, quite a challenge. But he finally says in verse 50, Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The first part of that phrase is found in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Mark doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount at all. But he has this phrase, although I'm sure Jesus said the same thing more than once. <clears throat> Alright, so then in chapter 10 we have a question about divorce. We had that in Matthew as well. Question In Matthew, how many times does Jesus talk about divorce? Two times, that's right. Two times. In Mark, how many times? One. Yeah. Bonus question. How many times in Luke? One. How many times in John? Zero. <laughs> yeah. So in, in in Matthew, it's the same as it it's the same story as in Mark, is one where the, the Pharisees are asking this question. The other one in Matthew is in the Sermon on the Mount, which of course Mark doesn't have. Um, they want to know about divorce. Jesus, of course, gives the same answer. Um, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. But Mark gives one extra detail in the answer in, for, in verses 10 to 12. The disciples began questioning about this again. But you remember in Matthew, the disciples said, um, if that's the way it is, maybe it's better not to get married. <laughs> but here, it doesn't cover that. But here's what Jesus says in verse 11 Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. That second part about the woman is not in Matthew, nor is it in Luke. Um, and 
if, you, if we understand that Matthew is writing primarily for a Jewish audience, we can see why. In, in, in the Jewish law, women could not divorce their husbands. You look in the Old Testament, there's no provision for a woman to divorce her husband in the Old Testament. So it just was not even a question for them. They did not allow it. But the Romans did. The Roman women would divorce their husbands. And so Mark includes this detail because his audience needs that. I'll just mention one other thing. There's only one of the three writers who mentions except for the cause of fornication or sexual immorality. you know which writer that was? Yeah, that's Matthew. He mentions it both in the Sermon on the Mount and in this particular story. Both of them have except for the cause of sexual immorality. Mark does not. So, the only place you have the exception is if it's the man divorcing his wife. Now, people read this and they say, well, I'm sure he meant it to apply to the woman as well. And they use, they use the principle that whatever is right for the husband is right for the wife, which is not a valid principle for the Bible. So it, it leaves a bit of a problem for people. If you go back in any of the older commentaries, 100 years or more ago, I think you'd find a huge problem finding any of them suggesting that a woman can divorce her husband for adultery. But in the 20th century, we've absorbed this view that whatever a husband can do, a wife can do, and vice versa. There's just no difference. And that's not a Bible view. It's just a, it's an American society view. Well, let me move on. Um, let me see here. Um, I should have mentioned. I should have shown the map here because in verse one, he he's moved to a new area. He moved to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, which is probably down around here. This is called Bethany beyond the Jordan. That's where he is. So from, he was in Capernaum in Galilee, and now he's moved down here. I don't think he's going back to Galilee again. He's kind of finished with the Galilean work. Um, Now, in, in verse 17, we have a story called what? Rich young ruler. Rich young ruler, yeah. He says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And we have the same response in Matthew. But I want to ask again, why is Jesus giving the guy such a hard time about saying to Jesus, Good teacher? Wasn't he a good teacher? That was his point. There's more to it, I think, than this. I don't think so. No, it's not that either. Because Jesus recognizes something within this young man. Yep. Well, I'm sure that's part of it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think what the reason Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Is because the man wants to know what good thing he can do. He wants, he wants to do good works to inherit eternal life. And the answer is, that's a very high standard. Because the only one who ever meets that standard is God. Now we understand Jesus was God. He met that standard. But 
This man is never going to meet that standard. He, he is not going to be good. And yet, that's his thinking. It's a, it's a salvation by works mentality. And, and Jesus finally shows him the problem when He says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow Me. Trying to wake the guy up to the fact that your heart is not good. That's where the, that's where the real problem is. And of course, he didn't do it. And um, Jesus says, "How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God." But in fact, when the disciples in verse twenty-four were amazed at his words, he says, "Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> it's hard for anybody." And when they asked, "Well, who can be saved?" he says in verse twenty-seven, "With people, that it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God." Then in verse 35, we've got a story that we had in Matthew with a little bit different detail. In fact, in this case, Matthew leaves something out. What did Matthew mention that Mark just didn't mention at all? His mother. His mother that came to him, yeah. In this case, Mark just says, well, James and John came to him. Which, of course, they did through his mother, but that's what they were doing. And so you got you have the exact same problem they had before. Who's the greatest? And they're trying to you know do, do a one-up thing on the other disciples and grab the chief spots before they're all taken. And what was added to the other ten in verse forty-one about this? They were offended. Yeah. Why were they offended? Well, because they wanted a shot. <laughs> they wanted it too. That's right. Yeah. That that's the that's the cause of jealousy and dissatisfaction with one another is this um, misunderstanding of what it means to be great in God's kingdom. Jesus has to try to straighten them out again. And then finally at the end of the chapter we have a story uh, coming out of Jericho. Jesus has now crossed the Jordan and He's gone through Jericho. He's on the way to Jerusalem for the last time. And there's a blind beggar. Now, in Matthew, there's two blind beggars. But Mark just homes in on one of them. And in fact, he's the only one that gives us the name. His name was Bartimaeus. Which Bar means son of. So he's the son of Timaeus. Uh, the rest of the story is pretty much the same. Jesus, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. And people are saying, be quiet, don't bother him. And fortunately for the guy, he didn't pay any attention to them, but he caught credit all the more. And so finally Jesus stops and says, call him here. And um, Jesus says, what would you like me to do for you? Oh, I want to regain my sight. Well, go, you, go. your faith has made you well. And then he immediately followed him on the road. Wonderful gift for this man. And it was his last chance. Jesus was not going to come through Jericho again. Alright, then we have the triumphal entry and some events following that. Um, and more details here. Um, in Matthew, they, they just they got a colt. But in, in Mark, he tells us the details. He first told them to go get the colt. Told them where they'd find it. But then in verse 4, they went away and found the colt, tied at the door outside in the street, just like Jesus said they would, and they untied it. And then some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? So they spoke to them. Jesus, Jesus told them and they gave them the permission. Um, those little, little, little details that 
make the story a little bit more interesting for us. And then, of course, he rides in, and in verse 9, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And this was, this was what the disciples have been waiting for. That, that's what they all think the son of David is going to be. Um, Mark gives us another detail in verse 11. He entered Jerusalem, came into the temple after looking around at everything. He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. In Matthew, you get the impression that he cleansed the temple on the same day that he had the triumphal entry. But in Mark, you find out, no, it was the next day, in fact. And then on the next day, it says he became hungry. And what did he want to eat? Figs. Figs, yes. Yeah. So he sees this fig tree with leaves. My, my understanding is that fig trees actually put out figs before the leaves come out. They're not ripe, but apparently you can still eat them even before they're ripe. Um, so if you see leaves, you'd expect some figs because it's not the season yet for figs, so they wouldn't have been all picked off. You ought to be able to get something to eat, but what was on it? Just leaves. Yeah, just leaves. And what Jesus sees when He sees that is not just the lack of a meal. I don't know that He cared that much about the lack of a meal. What He sees is a picture of Israel. They got the leaves. Israel's got the leaves. It looks like it ought to have fruit, but it doesn't have any fruit. And what's he say to the tree? Yeah, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then in Matthew, it says, well, it immediately withered. But in Mark, it's the next day that they see it withered. I'm sure it did immediately wither, but they didn't see it till the next day. And it's not down till down like verse 21 when Peter says, hey, look, the fig tree with your curse is withered. And then he gives them a lesson about prayer. Um, verse 24, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Now, but I want to go back. In between, he cleansed the temple in verse 15. And one of the things that Mark mentions is in verse 16, he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Why would someone want to carry merchandise through the temple? No, I don't think so. Um, shortcut, yes. Here's the map of Jerusalem. What if you're down here in the lower city and you want to get to this road here, um, you know, you're trying to get there. How are you going to get from one place to the other? Well, on this map, the only way I can see would be either you go through the temple to get out the gate there, or you're going to have to go way around out one road. You know, it, it's just, it was convenient. And so, rather than thinking about this is God's house, they're thinking this is the shortest way from point A to point B. And Jesus was not happy with that. That's not the way to treat the temple. And then, in verse 27, we have the first challenge from the authorities. By what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus responds with, question about John the Baptist's authority. One thing I want, I want, we want to emphasize is that unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus does not try to play tricks on people. He's not just trying to get the best of them in the debate. He is bringing their attention to their, their fundamental flaw. And so when He asks them the authority of John, it's not just so, uh, I guess I got out of that one. That's not it at all. Their attitude toward God is shown by the rejection of John. 
And their dishonesty is shown by the fact they are not willing to admit it. So when he says, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things, they did not deserve an answer. Their heart was not right with God. Alright, so chapter 12, we've got the parable of the vine growers, which we had this in, um, in Matthew as well. So I won't spend a lot of time on it. Um, but he asked at the end in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And what's the answer? Well, they'll come and throw them all out and bring in new people. Yeah, he'll destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. So, and that's the story, that's the point of, of God coming in judgment on Jerusalem. What year was that? 70 AD. Yeah, 70 AD. And the kingdom is handed over to Gentiles who, who, bear, who better bear the fruit of it, or else it's the same thing will happen to them. But in verse 12, they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. They understood it was against them, but they're not going to repent. <laughs> they could see how it applied, but they're not going to change their ways. <clears throat> then we have the, the story in verse 13. They're trying to trap him with the story about the taxes. And again, they're, they're not playing fair with him. They, don't, they care not a bit about what answer he gives. They just want to get him in trouble. Jesus gives them a very honest answer. One that not only gets them out of the trap, but is useful to us to this day in understanding our relationship to God and to the government. Um, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the the things that are God's. The Sadducees then pull the same stunt with their hokey story about this woman that was married to seven different brothers all in a row. And Jesus finally says in verse 24, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. <laughs> that's, that's the issue they've got. Um, and then the, one of the scribes comes and asks them a question. And In, in Matthew, this seems like one of, another one of their trick questions. But the scribe ends up... A, a, in a, he gets painted a little bit better in, in Mark. We get some extra details. Um, what commandment is the foremost of all? The Jews love this question. They're all the time trying to distinguish you know, which is the most important. Um, years ago, I, I took a, a free class given by a local rabbi on um, how to read Hebrew letters. We didn't, didn't learn what they meant at all, but how to read the letters. And one, and one day he suggested to us, you know, you know which of the Ten Commandments is the most important? And I think he said the the Sabbath was the most important. And and somehow he had figured out if you violate the Sabbath, then you can violate all these others. I I don't remember very well because to me it sounded so hokey. (laughs) If I was going to pick one of the ten, um, I'd probably start with one. You know, you have no other gods before me. And if that wasn't a choice, I'd pick the last one. You should not covet. Because coveting leads to about every, every other one that there is in there. But the fundamental problem here is that they're all important. And Jesus gives him the answer in verse 29. The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
Now he's going to go on and tell them, you must love him with all your heart, but he's one Lord. He's united. You don't take his commandments and say, well, I'll do this one and not this one. God is one. And the guy really likes his answer because in verse 32, he says, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> That's pretty surprising for one of these guys trying to trap him. <clears throat> and then the other story that Mark has that is not in Matthew is the story that we call the widow's mite down at the end of the chapter. She came in in verse 42 and put in two small copper coins. And what did Jesus say about that? She gave all she had. And furthermore, he says, she put in more than all the contributors of the treasury. Two pennies more than everyone else. Yeah. All right, I'm going to have to move on here. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem in chapter 13 is very similar to Matthew 24, although it's not as detailed. But it, follow, it pretty much follows the same outline. I'm going to skip over it. Um, the Last Supper has some interesting enhancements. Um, I'll jump down into verse 12. They ask him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, understand, this comes right after Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus. But the disciples don't know it. Of course, Jesus does, but they don't know it. So he gives them this, this plan. You go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And he goes into these details. And so they do this. So they come back and, and, and you know I'm sure they tell him, you know, it's all ready. Judas is there, but he has no idea where they're going to have the Passover. So Jesus is going to be able to have the Passover knowing that there's not going to be a bunch of troops arresting him before he can finish this. Of course, Judas left before the feast was over. I'm sure he was trying to, hey, hurry up, guys, you know, I know where he is. <laughs> um, um, much the, the, the Lord's Supper, same thing as in Matthew, um, predicting Peter's denials. Um, a slight difference where he says, Truly I said to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. The mention of the twice is a little bit different. And then, of course, Peter insists he won't. Um, in verse 37, after Jesus has prayed for an hour or so, He finds Peter asleep with the other two asleep. And He says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think that really goes with His statement to Peter, you're going to deny Me three times. Peter, if you don't want to do it, it's, it's not enough just to say, oh no, I'll do, I'm willing to die for you. You need to spend time in prayer. And that, and that was what was missing here. And we need to consider that same thing. Do we see ourselves weak in the face of temptation? Jesus is telling us the answer. Pray. Um, Alright, so then uh, Judas comes along. Um, much the same, he kisses him, you know, all this. 
But there's one thing that's so intriguing in verse 51. Not, none of the other writers mentioned this. A young man was following him. This is not one of the twelve. And, and think about this. Jesus had the Passover with only his twelve. He went to the Gethsemane with only the twelve. But now there's this young man following him. What's the guy wearing? A linen sheet. Yeah, just a linen sheet. This is not his normal daytime wear. <clears throat> he just grabbed a sheet and wrapped it around him and he's following. And they seized him and what did he do? He abandoned his linen sheet. Yeah, and he escaped naked. Yeah, <clears throat> Which I'm sure the, the soldiers who were grabbing him thought that was really funny. Uh, <clears throat> he kept the sheet, I'm sure. Um, who is this guy? Yeah, most... There are a lot of people who look at this and say, that's Mark. That's John Mark. And I think they're right. Um, in fact, they, um, they suggest, and there, there's some evidence, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but some evidence that the Last Supper was at Mark's house. We know in Acts chapter 12, when Peter got out of prison, let out by the angel, he went to Mary's house, who was the mother of John Mark. There were a lot of Christians there praying for Peter. Apparently she had a good-sized house. So it would have been big enough for the Last Supper. And the way Mark describes them coming, he talks about you know, he came with his disciples, like Mark was in the house and he sees them coming. But if you think about it, if when Judas went to betray Jesus, where is he going to bring the troops to? He's going to bring them back to the house where the supper was in. Pound, 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 you know, hey. Where's Jesus? Mark's probably already gone to bed. He hears this, grabs a sheet, wraps it around, and follows these guys to see what's going to happen. And so he puts in this story. And just like all the other gospel writers, he will not mention himself by name. None of, none of them do. So that one is that's an extra piece of information he has that none of the others have. And then the the trial is much the same that we've seen in the uh, in Matthew. Peter's betrayals are much the same, except that it adds this detail about in verse 68, a rooster crowed in the middle. He hasn't finished the three denials. And then finally in verse 72, a rooster crowed a second time, and then Peter remembered. So, um, <clears throat> oh, I forgot to show you on the map. This is Gethsemane. That's where they that's where Jesus went to pray and where he was arrested. And then his trial before Pilate. Um, he didn't answer, and in verse 5, Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Got the word amazed again. Although in Matthew, he was also amazed. Um, in verse 21, they pressed into service who? Simon of Cyrene. Pressed into service to do what? Carry his cross, yes. This is. Um, the Roman soldiers were allowed to force people to do stuff like that. Just grab you off the street. But Mark has this thing. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. The only reason Mark is going to mention Alexander and Rufus is if he thinks his readers know them. Which means they had to be Christians. And this may well have been the very first time Simon had ever met Jesus. But it apparently was a transforming experience for him because his own sons became Christians after that. Um, Mark also mentions times. Um, in um, 
Let me see where we are. Verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified Him. Um, Mark Matthew doesn't mention that. And then the darkness in the verse 33 from the sixth hour of darkness was over the face of the whole land until the ninth hour. Then finally, the ninth hour, He cries with a loud voice. And, and Mark translates it for us. Um, and I think the rest of it is much the same. Um, and finally, the resurrection. The, the women come to, to find Him. They, of course, like they did in Matthew, they were wondering who's going to roll the stone away. But the stone was already rolled away. Entering the tomb, this is, this is unusual. Verse 7, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Now, this would have been something like what they would have seen, although this is on the left, but on the right it would have been very similar. This is, this is how the rich people made their tombs back then. This shelf was where they would lay the body. Um, and there's another one at the, well, at the back there's some more things like this on the right there would have been another shelf like that um, so they would, have, they would have come in and, and on the right they see the, the man sitting there an angel of course although Mark doesn't call him that and it says but go tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you to Galilee there you will see him just as he told you they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment to grip them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid now here we have one of the strange things about the book of Mark. And you may notice that the rest of the of the chapter is in brackets, square brackets in your Bible if you have a New American Standard. And this is one of these things that has prompted discussions down through the ages. The um, the, the earliest manuscripts do not have this last part in it. Um Though there's good evidence that the last part was written very early, even earlier than these earliest manuscripts. Uh, the ISB says that, and they didn't say why, but they said that the, the, the copyists who were copying the two earliest ones that we have both show evidence that they were aware of this section, but they rejected it and they didn't include it. And the ISB says that most scholars do not think that verses 9 through the end were written by Mark. They were added later. Um, and so you have this challenge that there, there are certainly some scholars that do think it was original. There's some that think that Mark actually intended to end with verse 8, which seems very abrupt. We, we read it, we get to verse 8, and we say, how could you end that? But there are some conservative scholars. I'm not talking about people that don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm talking about scholars that really believe that um, he did his miracles and that he was raised all this and they, they think that Mark just ended it there. I will say that that's not entirely out of Mark's character. He's, he's pretty abrupt <laughs> throughout, throughout the book. Um, but uh, but you won't, I just want you to be aware of this. You, you, you know, you'll probably see notes in your Bibles and, and other things. I don't, I'm not the one that's going to be able to solve the, the question. Uh, but I, I will observe that when you read from verse 9 to the end, it sounds very different from the rest of the book of Mark. Uh, it, it does not sound like how he's been writing. Um, you know, a guy can change his style, I'm sure. Um, but the fact that that section is left out of those early manuscripts indicates others recognize a problem. So, I just, you know, 
so this is kind of an introduction. I, I can't. I don't know much more than what I've told you anyway. But that's um, that's the kind of the story behind the footnote you see in your Bible. Any final questions or comments? Appreciate everyone's help this morning.